Hello and welcome to the Hole in My Heart podcast. This is episode 156, How We Got Here. Hello and welcome. I am your host, Lori Krieg, and I'm not with my favorite licensed therapist, Argyle Expert, and my husband, Matt Krieg. (gasps) Guys, I have a different co-host today for the first time ever. I can't (laughs) wait to introduce him to you, but I'll first slide it over to producer Steve, and he's ever faithful with his perfect radio voice. Hello, Steve. Hi, guys. I went down on my voice. I was a little too sad. Hello, Steve. (laughs) I'm glad you're here. (laughs) Me too. Uh, But my co-host today is none other than my very own father, the Honorable Judge Randall Heckman. Hi, Dad. Hello there, Lori. So good to be with you. So glad to have you here today. Thank you. Oh, man. Oh, you're you got, very kind. Yeah. Man, you guys, we have a guest beyond my dad, but my dad has actually been a guest here on the show. It was way back, episode 46, like mm. over 100 episodes ago. It's crazy town. Uh, but it was called When Your Kid Comes Out. So if you guys want to hear that, just a little more of our relationship. I believe there were tears in that one. Um, but I want to tell you guys a little bit more about my dad, a bio on him before we introduce our official guest today that we will together be uh, interviewing. Uh, So my dad, um, in addition to being on episode 46, which was peak life um, (laughs) before today's episode, but he uh, has a degree from MIT and then he also has a master's degree from George Washington University where he worked as an officer in the U.S. Navy in the Pentagon days. Is that like a thing, Dad? The Pentagon days? The Pentagon days. Really? I don't know about that. But I did work in the Pentagon during the day. And I went to night law school at George Washington University and actually got a law degree, a Juris Doctor degree as Good compared grief. to a master's degree. Just oh, a jurist doctor. Yes. You guys, I, Dad, I'm not doing very good. Okay. It's okay. You're doing fine. Okay. You're doing fine. I mean, I'm not doing very good as... Your daughter. That's the point that I'm trying to make right now. I need to know these things. So thank you for correcting me. Okay. But he has uh, run several nonprofits, including one where Steve and I were besties at, Yep. it's now, what's it, Keys for Kids Ministries? Keys for Kids, yep. I did some radio work and Steve was doing the producing. You both did incredible jobs there. Amazing. Dad, you really were rocking that thing. That was fun. Yep. It was fun. (laughs) It was fun. Uh, But currently he's leading a nonprofit organization seeking to pray and work for revival and spiritual awakening in our region, state, and nation. I love it. I love it. People who know my dad, they know him as a unifier of Mm. many people. So I appreciate that. And a prayer warrior. Uh, So is my mom. This is what I tell my siblings. Dad, you know I do this. Is that you're like sick or anything? I'm like, tell mom. She'll get on it. She's going to pray and stuff's going to happen. She will. She will pray. facts, you guys. She makes things happen because of Jesus in her. Anyway, he is the author of three books, Justice for the Unborn, Truth That Sets America Free, and Sweeter by the Dozen, Making Jesus the Lord of Our Family Size, which, Dad, I tell people, you know, I snooker them with that one. Because I ask people, have you prayed about how many kids you're supposed to have? But that's not the point of this episode. But we could be, couldn't it, Dad? Come on. We got to talk about it sometime. (laughs) He is the husband to my mom, Marsha, and dad to 12 kids. Seriously, Dad, you've done so much with your life. Holy cow. And um, just 12 kids, number nine being his favorite. I do like the number nine. I honestly do. Thank you. I am. (laughs) <laughs> and, but, and you are incredible. We are so proud of you. Well, we are. Truthfully. Thanks, truthfully. Dad. I mean it. 
Thanks, Dad. I'm really proud of you. And my other, there's many siblings I could point to who are way better than me. No, no, you're all incredibly Eh. in your own way. And we got 33 grandkids. I was going to say 30,000. Yep, well, it's close. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But welcome again, Dad. Thank you. Great to be with you. So, guys, when I learned that we were going to interview our guest today, I thought, my dad has to be a part of this because I have seen Oz's books around our house growing up and knew that, well, I guess, Dad, I didn't know, but I guess that interviewing him, talking with him could be fun for you. So without further ado, I want to welcome our official guest today, Oz Guinness. Oz, welcome. Thank you. Dad, you want to intro him? Well, certainly. Uh, for those of you who don't know Oz, like I do, it's really my privilege to be able to introduce him. He's an author, brilliant social critic. He has an undergraduate degree at the University of London, his PhD in the social sciences from Oriel College in Oxford. He's written or edited more than 30 books, including The Call, Time for Truth, Last Call for Liberty, that I just finished, great book, and the re-released book that we're gonna talk about today Uh, which came out initially in 1973, but it's been re-released. It's called The Dust of Death, The 60s Counterculture and How It Changed America Forever. Oz has spoken at many of the world's major universities, has many more accomplishments, uh, speaking widely to political and business conferences around the world, lives with his wife Jenny now in the Washington, D.C. area. So let me just add my welcome to you, uh, Dr. Guinness, also known as Oz. Welcome. Thank you, Randy. What a pleasure to be with you. Mm-hmm. Man, we're so looking forward to today's conversation How on how we in the West ended up in this spiritual, I don't know what else we'll dive into, but definitely the spiritual state that we are in and what's the way forward. But I, I feel only a tiny bit embarrassed to start with the lighter question of the week from last week. Sorry, guys. That's how we roll around here. Uh, but here's the question of the week that we asked our audience. And it's if you could renovate one, everyone's doing home reno right now during the COVID Corona time. And so a lot of Matt and I just redid one area of our house. If you could renovate one room of your house or your apartment, any way that you wanted it and money was no option, what would you do? Oz, we're going to throw this at you first. Home renovation, are you into it? What would you do? Well, about 10 years ago, we had a mold crisis in the house and we Uh-oh. had to strip it to the bricks. Mm. And my wife led a magnificent redoing of the house. So, in fact, I'm happy with all the rooms in our house. But <laughs> if money was really no object, I think she and I would extend my library a bit. I've got a lot of books that sit in the basement, and I just haven't got any room for them. I have a reasonably big study. You can see some of the books behind me, but there's okay. lots more I can't. And that would be my choice to oh. extend my study and have room for all my books. I love that. Hey, Dad, how about you? Well, how would you answer that? Well, I wasn't gonna say it, but boy, he, he struck a nerve there. I've got books in so many boxes, so that probably make, would make the most sense, but I wanna be a little creative here. You know how I enjoy airplanes. I do know that. You know that. So if, I had, if money were no object, it would be fun to have a, a room that's just full of model airplanes that both fly or don't fly, but just would keep reminding me of one of my favorite hobbies, which is flying airplanes. Oh, man, Dad, I love that. I like hearing (laughs) your heart come out. 
Um, okay, so I asked the audience, and if you guys want to join our Hold My Heart podcast group, you can find us on Facebook and just search Hold My Heart podcast, answer a couple questions, and we'll let you in. Uh, but I asked you guys, and one of you, Piper, said this. She said she would renovate her kitchen, uh, and I totally agree with that. Um, we have three little kids, six, four, and one, and we have our oven and stove is in the middle of our island, right in the middle of our kitchen, and so at least two of our kids have gotten burned on there. It's very dangerous, so I would like to fix that situation. Oh, man. Uh, We are going to step into our next question, which maybe you'll recognize this. We borrowed it from Tim Keller and then switched it around. But we've asked every guest, including my dad when he was a guest on this podcast, Mm -hmm. uh, this set of questions. And it's this. If the gospel is I'm more loved than I imagine and yet more sinful than I believe, when was the gospel first good news for you? And how is it still good news today? Mm. The second part of the question would take a long time. Mm. Well, let me put it briefly, the first one. I'm, I'm a missionary kid. Mm. I was born in China and lived through a terrible famine in which five million died, including my three brothers. Mm. And then we lived in the capital city. So I saw the climax of the communist revolution in 1949. Mm. So my parents were under house arrest and they were allowed to send me home to England. So I was most of my teenage years without them. And coming to take my faith deeply seriously, the first was a sort of two-year debate in my mind, and I read Nietzsche and Sartre and Camus, atheists like that, and on the other side, Pascal and Chesterton and C.S. Lewis, and eventually I was absolutely convinced the Christian faith was true. Mm. But it was rather intellectual. And actually, there was a day when I heard someone speak on the wonderful little verse in Luke 5, launch out into the deep. Hmm. And it was the first time the Lord himself spoke to me. Hmm. And I committed my life to Christ. But then I went to London University. And here we were, swinging London, the counterculture, drug, sex, rock and roll, Fellini, Bergman, you name it. And we had wonderful teachers, John Stott, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the greatest preachers of the 20th century. But they gave us rich, deep blocks of theology and zero relationship to what was happening. Hmm. So another huge advance for me was when I first met this funny little man in Swiss knickerbockers with a goatee. And he began connecting all the dots. And he encouraged us that you could think Christianly about anything and everything under the Lordship of Christ. And that was a tremendous surge forward for my faith. And that would bring me down to what you asked about today. Yeah. You know, I was born in a Buddhist culture. In my 20s, I studied under a guru in Rishikesh in India. I met Bertrand Russell. A.J. Eyre, the great philosopher, and Peter Hitch, uh, Christopher Hitchens. So I've seen many of the greatest leaders of the alternative faiths in the world. Wow. But the longer I've lived, and I've lived my three score years and ten, I'm in my bonus years now, there is nothing like the gospel. Mm. And the more I see the contrasts, mm. the more I come back with gratitude and wonder 
at what the gospel means. Amen. And it's sad to me living now in America where so much of the church is sick and shallow mm -hmm. and confused and divided and sometimes scandal-ridden. People don't realize the wonder of the gospel. So I give you the little phrase, contrast is the mother of clarity. Mm. Every time you see where the alternatives lead to, you come back with wonder, love, and praise at wow. the difference the good news of Jesus makes. It's beautiful. Amen. That's good. <laughs> now, I assume that the person in Knickers was Francis Schaeffer. Indeed. Okay. <laughs> and I'll say that when he came to Boston, uh, if you had asked me why I should become a Christian, I would have said, well, it's going to make you feel better. Uh, I was a Christian at the time, and uh, Schaefer would bluntly say, if you want to feel better, just take drugs. Hmm. He said, it's true truth, yeah. and that profoundly influenced my life. So I'm so mm -hmm. grateful for him and for you for being along with him and helping me to, uh, to grow in my faith. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Randy. Let me, uh, let's move on. Uh, you know, your, your recently released book, The Dust of Death, got a copy of it right here. Uh, great, great read. Again, initially you wrote it in 73. It's, it's just released again. And you make the strong statement, in fact, in your preface to this new edition, you say, no one can understand the present crisis in the United States and the West without understanding the 60s. That's a pretty strong statement. Now, why do you say that? Well, in many ways, you think of how this year, 2020, was like a rerun of 1968. True. But far deeper than that, if you think of the rise of what's sometimes called neo or cultural Marxism, you know, it began with Antonio Gramsci in the 1920s in Italy, picked up by the Frankfurt School. And the leading thinker was Herbert Marcuse in the 60s. But around 67, 68, 68 was my first visit to this country. But around 67, 68, Marcuse and Rudi Deutschke, the leader of the Red Brigade in Germany, called for a long march through the institutions. In other words, in 68, a hundred American cities were ablaze. Martin Luther King, assassinated. Bobby Kennedy, assassinated. But for all the cities ablaze, they knew they would not win in the streets. So they called for a long march. In other words, you've got to win the colleges and universities, the press and the media, and the world of Hollywood and entertainment. Win the cultural gatekeepers, and then you can sweep round and win the culture. And when you had a merging of postmodernism coming out of France and this cultural Marxism coming from the Frankfurt School, that's behind critical theory and all these things we've seen, and it's dominated the leading thinkers of America. That's the deepest challenge we face, mm. and many Christians don't understand it. So to understand where it come from, you've got to understand the 60s. I was a little surprised when IVP said they were going to republish the book. I wrote <laughs> it in 71. Mm -hmm. uh, but actually, the 60s truly are the key to 2020 and where we are. And those who don't understand, for example, I met pastors who've unwittingly taken over, say, Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. without realizing the stable that it comes from. And that's just plain naive. Right. 
you've got to understand the 60s to really know what we're facing in 2020 and 2021. What do you mean by the stable that it comes from? Well, the ideas you have today, Black Lives Matter, who can argue with the slogan? But actually, the two of the three founders described themselves as trained Marxists. Now, they're cultural Marxists. But cultural Marxism, we know that classical Marxism, say, is behind the revolution in China. That's not what we're facing, straight out communism. But we're facing this cultural Marxism, which you see in women's studies, in race studies, in queer studies, in fat studies, and so on and so on. Notions like hegemony and intersectionality and all these things. They come out of ideas that were spawned in the late 1960s. Hmm. So how was the church, how healthy was it in the 60s? Was it like thriving in the midst of this? Like you mentioned this. Uh, no. No. Okay. So what was it like? And I know that the Jesus movement came around that time, but in the 70s, well, but what about the 60s? Before the 60s, the church was heavily, the evangelical movement, heavily pietistic. Hmm. And it was commented on by a historian in California when he described as privately engaging, publicly irrelevant. Mm. I was here the year we met, Randy, maybe. You know, I was here for six weeks. I only met one evangelical leader, Carl Henry, yeah. who founded Christianity Today, sure. who really understood what was happening. Mm. Most evangelicals were shocked and disagreed. They were completely out of it. It was in the 70s, around 75, when evangelicals went from being overly privatized to being overly politicized. But that's actually the opposite extreme. And then politics became the be-all and end-all of everything. Hmm. If you read my book, I was not actually that impressed with the Jesus movement. It was kind of the vehicle through which people in the 60s went to the extremes and came back into mainstream culture. But the Jesus movement was incredibly shallow. It was real. People were genuinely born again and so on, but it wasn't very thoughtful. In other words, they had warm hearts and passionate emotions, but pretty empty heads. And that's been a problem all along. Mm. The challenge is we want people who think Christianly, but really love the Lord with all their hearts and minds too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I know a number of folks who came to faith in Christ during the Jesus movement in the early 70s. Mm. You know, they were, they were the hippies, no, you know, and they came to faith in Christ. But as you say, it, it didn't really last. Why, why was it that it didn't have staying power? Is it because it was more emotional than it was uh, perhaps thought through and, and deep from a theological and a, a life perspective? Well, take the examples of the Jews. If you know the Hasidic movement, right. a lot of Judaism became very secular, a lot of it very formal and conventional. And the Hasids brought back a devotion mm. that was remarkable. And they're rather like the evangelicals. And evangelicalism at its best is not only the people of the good news. I love that. But they were those with a faith that really had passionate hearts. And that was wonderful. But there was a limitation to the pietism. You had passionate hearts and rather empty heads. 
Mm-hmm. And so the 60s woke a lot of evangelicals up, but many of them, as I said, went to the other extreme. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm not criticizing pietism. We need that warm, passionate hearts that love God with everything that our hearts are about. But we got to think, too. You mentioned Francis Schaeffer. I mean, he definitely brought the thought, the depth of thought. <laughs> but he also got into political things. Uh, like uh, right to life and those sorts of issues. Was that inappropriate, do you think, for him? Not at all. Not at all. You know, he followed, it was actually the Catholics who blazed the trail on pro-life, and he followed C. Everett Koop Mm -hmm. and others in getting into that. And, of course, the pro-life issue owes a lot to him. But you can see that the religious right as a whole, Mm -hmm. 1975, moral majority. The idea, the sleeping giant has woken up and we're going to take America back. Right. And they forgot the politics is downstream from culture. That's good. That's good. The real damage is in culture. Hmm. It's in families and behind that in ethics and behind that in philosophy. I say today that America is suffering from philosophical cynicism, Mm -hmm. from moral corruption and social collapse. You take the philosophical cynicism, there's no truth. There's no objective reality. There's no moral knowledge. Mm -hmm. So we've got relativism, we've got emotivism, truth is what you feel, and you've got now constructivism and so on. Well, American freedom is finished if that continues. Mm. Yeah. That is a deadly crisis at the very heart of American thinking. Mm -hmm. So we saw the horror of George Floyd this summer, but I say bluntly, American intellectuals have their knee on the neck of truth. (laughs) And truth today simply cannot breathe, and it's dying in America in academia. Yeah, there's just a disbelief that truth exists. Again, I keep bringing back Francis Schaeffer, but his term, true truth. You know, it's true not just for me, but it's 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 a, it's true for everybody. That's and, right. And that whole concept is just no, no. It's just my truth versus your truth. I'm not going to judge you. You're not going to judge me. Everything's relativistic. Okay, but how do you engage, you know, young people today? So, Dad, you and I, we have our political differences. We do. We do. And <laughs> I, I mean, I will tend toward the emotive and. As you guys are talking, I'm just picturing our audience. I'm picturing 20-somethings who are, you know, care about uh, Black Lives Matter. And I'm not saying the organization. I'm just saying about racial equity. And they care about things like George Floyd. And they care about um, their feelings. And so it's one thing to say, uh, you know, we have we're suffocating truth, but it's another thing to, how do you make it palatable? How, is there not a way to start where people are and how do you back them up to philosophy? Of course you start, always start where people are. The pattern is the incarnation. When God wanted to reach us, he became one of us. You yeah. always start where people are, but you don't end where they are. So you mentioned George Floyd, or I mentioned him too. Yeah. The left and Christians both agree that was outrageous. It was evil. There's no question. We agree on saying what is unjust and evil. Where we disagree profoundly is how you tackle it. 
you run George Floyd and Black Lives Matter at its best through critical race theory. And all you have is a power conflict. There is no truth. Hmm. There is only power. So as you know, they talk hegemony. Who's got the power? Who's the majority? Who's the minority? Who's the oppressor? Who's the victim? Then you identify the victim and use them, weaponize them to overcome the status quo. But it's only a power struggle. And there is no final vision of genuine justice objectively because there isn't any such thing. Now, you compare that with the gospel. The first voices in history to speak against injustice were the Hebrew prophets. Hmm. But you have truth addressing power. Mm -hmm. You have a call to confession. People go on record against themselves where they're wrong. You have the possibility of forgiveness, and forgiveness is very closely linked to freedom, freeing the past and freeing the future. And then you have reconciliation. In other words, we agree on addressing evil. We disagree profoundly on how you address evil. And the gospel's way is deeper and far more constructive and effective. And I've talked to pastors this year all over the country. Mm -hmm. Many of them have drunk the left-wing Kool-Aid. They don't know where it comes from. You can't just say justice. You've got to say justice, but then the question is, whose vision of justice and how do you tackle injustice? So how, okay, so like the dichotomy that you started with was Christians and then the left. I know a lot of Christians who maybe, as you would say, are drinking the left-wing Kool-Aid, but I would just say they're trying to be thoughtful and are seeing, I'm, by the way, I wouldn't say I'm either left or right. I'm trying to be more gospel-centered, and I know a lot of people who are listening are, and so I, I guess... Dad, this is where you and I can disagree, and maybe this is the point of this episode, is talk about how we can disagree with love, even in our family. Um, But how, like, it feels like the next sentence is, or where you're heading is, okay, so then the answer is on the right, and... No, 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 Who's mentioned the right? I know, that's why I'm asking. So that's the question that was popping my head. Okay. Left and right are categories from the French Revolution. Okay. I'm, you said gospel-centered. Yeah. Everything I said to you is not just gospel-centered, prophet-centered. Mm. In other words, biblically-centered. Mm. I'm not right-wing, but I'm certainly actually against the right and the left. Both mm. extremes mm. are very dangerous. Mm-hmm. The left is more dangerous because they have the centers of intellectual power, the universities. Mm. The right-wing doesn't. But both are wrong, no question. Hmm. Okay. So don't don't pin us down as right. I'm I'm just Biblical. saying. Right. Well, right. <laughs> Not right. left. Uh, okay, Dad. Maybe I'll let you jump yeah, in. Yeah. Well, I I just remember a time when I was involved in Rotary Club. We had this day long or half day long conference with a bunch of I think it were seniors in high school, and at least one of them was a Jewish young man. And uh, I, I was talking to them about what's right and what's wrong. And they were all relativistic, okay? So I said, okay, if we would pass a law that said anybody over the age of 80 who does not have the resources to take care of their medical needs, that we can put them to sleep for the sake of the rest of the culture. Is that, is that a good law or a bad law? 
And every one of these kids says, well, it would be bad for those people over 80, but it'd be good for everybody else. Hmm. And then I, then I said, because I knew there was at least one Jewish kid here, I said, what, what Hitler did to kill six million Jews in World War II, was that good or bad? And again, they were very consistent. They said, well, it was bad for the Jews, but it was good for Hitler. Do you see what, I, what there, there's this sense, there is no truth. Everything is my feelings versus your feelings. And none of us is right. But so then might makes right. The person that has the biggest gun can make the rules. And that's, I think, what, uh, what Oz is telling us here is that hmm. when you don't have a sense of truth, then the person with, a, with the strongest weaponry, yeah. you see, because culture cannot exist without somebody in charge. Oz doesn't know this. I used to be a prosecutor and a judge. I mean, I, I, involve, I understand law enforcement. <laughs> when they talk about defunding the police, I mean, it's just absurd. What are you going to do? You're going to have social workers just being, let's just be nice people. No, they're going to do what happens in countries where they go toward this illusion of, of, of perfection and utopia is eventually you've got to have the strong man that, that, that enforces these laws and kills or whatever they have to do to the others versus a Christian perspective, which is it is wrong to kill. It is wrong to steal. It is wrong to lie. But it's only if we have the gospel inside of us that we can have not much of a government. It, it, Edmund Burke, great quote by Edmund Burke that I'm sure Oz knows, that uh, either we're, we're going to be controlled from the inside or from the outside. We need, we need pressure from somewhere. We need authority from somewhere. And the more it is inside because of God, the less we need on the outside. <laughs> so let, let's move on to your other book, if we can, while you're thinking. <laughs> Here it is. Last call. I read this uh, actually before Lori asked me to be involved in this program. Great read. This is a more recent. When was this? When did this come out, Oz? Mm, a couple of years ago. Okay. In here, you 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 mentioned many times, and you've implied it already uh, in the program here today, the difference between two different kinds of revolution: the revolution of 1776 and the revolution of 1789. Explain the difference, please. Well, there are five great revolutions in world history. The English, the American, the French, the Russian, the Chinese. Now, the first two were different in that the English failed and the American succeeded. But they were both similar in the sense that both of them came from, through the Reformation from the Bible. Even the idea of revolution is actually a biblical idea. The other three revolutions, the French, the Russian, and the Chinese, are all anti-religious, anti-Christian, anti-biblical, and anti-clerical. So you've got to see the differences between them. For instance, you've just mentioned one, Randy, rather well. The American Revolution is realistic. The other three are utopian. Mm -hmm. The whole notion of checks and balances, separation of powers, through Madison, from Witherspoon, comes from the notion that we're sinners. The separation of powers is in the Old Testament. You had the king, the priest, and the prophet, and they were all three different authorities. Mm -hmm. That's actually biblical. That's just one of the differences. The notion of freedom is different. You know, as Lord Acton put it, secular freedom is freedom to do what you like. Hmm. Biblical freedom, Christian freedom, Jewish and Christian freedom, is the power to do what you ought. So freedom requires truth. Hmm. Freedom requires character. 
Freedom requires a way of life. You can't live any way you like if you really want to be free. Our Lord said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free, and so on. So between the American and the French Revolution, now the trouble is, let's be clear, and Larry, your generation will jump in fast here. <laughs> the American Revolution had an evil and hypocrisy at its start. That's the tragedy, slavery. That's true. But I would say, and remember, I'm European. In the 18th, for example, you not only had people like William Wilberforce, an evangelical, pleading with Thomas Jefferson yeah. and later with James Monroe to abolish slavery, and they didn't. Mm. But you had people like Samuel Johnson, who created the first dictionary. He said, how come the drivers of, I'm using his words, those who yelp about freedom are the drivers of Negroes. Hmm. No, as they saw immediately across the water, what a contradiction yeah. of the Declaration. Yes. If Americans had listened to the Bible and the Declaration in the beginning, the tragedy might have been averted, but they didn't. But the difference between the American and the Revolution is the important today. I've mentioned justice. That's an obvious con contemporary example. Your generation thinks emotively. You don't realize that comes from Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Hmm. You know, he says in Emil, what I feel is true is true. Right. What I feel is good is good. I don't well, hear that absolute... anywhere. <laughs> oh, you don't, huh? Oh, yeah. I don't. <laughs> oh, your, your generation feels first and then thinks second Yeah. in many cases. And that's a disaster. It is. Now, you've got to have good feelings got to love the Lord with your heart, no question, but not emotivism and not relativism, as your dad said, and not constructivism either, the third one, the radical one. Okay, wait, what's constructivism? Is that what you just talked? No. Well, that's the idea that all together of us, through the things we take as plausibly true, we construct a reality. Okay. And there's no such thing as truth. It's just simply, if you can say something, and make it stick, make enough people agree with you, then whatever you think has been socially constructed. Mm. But there's no truth. There's no male or female. Yeah, That's just yeah. your social construction. You, I don't know who your kids are, but you are obviously shaping them from the word go. Right. And so on. That's the notion of social. That's very radical. The Bible, male and female. Mm. Transgenderism, no binaries, no truth, no boundaries. You are what you want to be and how you feel today. Mm. Mm -hmm. That's going to lead to madness and confusion. Yeah. Well, yeah. And we talk about that a lot on this podcast. We talk about gender and we engage people where they are. I just keep coming back there. And this is probably my generation and my super feeling self <laughs> talking is you're you're I'm so grateful for this, the history, and I'm grateful to be having this conversation, but I just keep picturing our audience and I keep seeing them say, yes, this is how I feel. I feel, therefore I am. And so how, how do you, like, I'll ask dad and I'll ask you, Oz, I'll ask you, Randy and Oz, like, how do you engage today then? Dad, you had a great question with, you know, the relativism argument but how do you engage people today if you're saying it's not i feel therefore that's reality is it you talk about the history we look at the 60s we walk our way up like what will actually reach hearts i don't know i mean one thing that 
when I share the gospel, I mean, it comes down to me to, to the resurrection, to be honest with you. I mean, either Jesus Christ, like C.S. Lewis said, I mean, he, he's either a liar, a lunatic, or he really was the son of God. Either he rose from the dead in space and time, and he's alive today. It's not just, well, I feel that, therefore, I'm, you're a Buddhist, you're a, a Muslim, you're this, you're that, we're all right. Which just get along? No, I'm sorry. It, it's again. We get back to see us or to to Francis Schaeffer, who lovingly would people start people at their where they believe and push them to the extreme of their presuppositions yeah. in yeah. love, and then they just that's what I was doing with that group of kids. But to me, the if Jesus, I'll just put it this way: if it could be shown to me that Jesus Christ did not physically on space and time, come back from the dead out of that grave. I don't care how good I might feel being a Christian. I'm not going to be a Christian anymore. I mean, it's 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 a fact. It's it's a fact. But so quit pushing it into this area of of opinion. So there are facts. There are things that are right. There are things that are wrong. Um, and and I don't, I mean, the feelings are great. But our, our culture is so subjective at this point that, mm-hmm. okay, I just believe the moon's made out of green cheese. Mm-hmm. That's, <laughs> therefore, it's got to be made out of green. That's, we're just crazy. Yeah. That's nuts. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you lovingly tell people, you wake up. <laughs> it's, it's just reality is what reality is. And quit pushing religious truth off into the area of opinion. What do you say? Thank you, Dad. Yeah. And what do you say, Oz? How do no, you engage with, today? Yeah, go ahead. I agree with all that your dad has said, but I would just say what we've been talking about is not how you speak to people. Yeah. You know, we're talking about trying to understand the times. You know, yeah. David's men who were skilled in reading the signs of the times. Our Lord says that too. So we've got to do that. Now, when you read the signs of the times and you understand what we're up against, you see the difference between the Bible and the gospel and modern ideas. Okay. Now, obviously, most people, when you talk to them, let's shift to that. You always start where they are, right. of course. But to the degree that their ideas are wrong or crazy, as Randy said, you don't say, come back to God, come back to God, or everything will fall apart. <laughs> you do what Schaefer did, more importantly, what the prophet Elijah did. Elijah never said, you know, he had 850 prophets against him, plus the royal court. And the people sitting on the fence. Yeah. He didn't say come back. He said, if Baal is God, follow Baal. He could only have the courage to do that because he knew that Baal was not God. And when they'd falsified Baal, which they did, then they'd be open to seeing the Lord prove himself as God. So we do the same today. You're into this? I'm going to take you seriously and challenge you to see what it really means, mm-hmm. not just in theory, but in practice for your life, for your kids. And when at a certain point you go, oh, wow, well, then we can have a real discussion because you can see the difference between some of these crazy ideas and the wonder and the truth of the gospel. Mm-hmm. So you always start where people are. But if they won't listen to the gospel, fair enough. The gospel is good news to people in a bad situation, but people aren't. Mm-hmm. In other words, they're feeling everything's fine. You've got to start where they are and push them out further. Yeah. It's good. Until they're open to seeing more. You know, you bring Elijah up. You remember how Elijah 
made people convinced that the Jehovah was the real God was the, the miracle of the fire coming down. We can show miracles today too. Certainly we can pray for people that are ill and so on, and, and there are uh, stories of that. But John uh, 17, 23 says, as Jesus is praying the day before he goes to the cross, he says Help, that we would be one so that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. The, our love for one another is a powerful, I mean, for black, white, Asian, Hispanic followers of Christ to love each other, despite their differences, is a powerful message to our very split world. So, and there are other ways too. Just another thought. I'm just picturing some friends who may be listening to this and who are going through really hard stuff right now. Like, I, I, there's the world is hurting. Mm -hmm. And even today I was like, they just need to accept that God is good. And so even though, you know, we're, we're talking about this big thing, like, I'm like, okay, this is clicking now, is how, how we can, you know, where I would maybe take them to the extreme of, okay, you don't have to follow God. You can give him the finger with XYZ scenario and feel that he hates you. I think that's a huge one right now. That's like, I actually got several messages today from followers, whatever that means on, on Instagram that people are like, I just feel like he hates me and that he's abandoned me. But you're right, guys. At the end of the day, there is true truth. True truth, dad. Amen. Amen. But Laurie, a lot of people have a faith. You know, the rude word snowflake. I do no, know that who, rude word. Yes. People whose view of life is so shallow that they hit the ground and it melts. Yeah. There is a tougher Christian equivalent. A lot of people have a view of faith that is untested mm. and in many ways is weak. And yes, when the sir. testing comes, yes. it shows up the weakness. And that's one of the roots of doubt. So I said to you, my parents, we were in a famine in which five million died, including my two brothers. Mm. My mother was a doctor. Mm. No medicine, no food. Mm. People dying by the hundreds all over the place. And she would say that it was in that situation that her faith in God became unmistakable. Wow. You, you know Viktor Frankl. Yep. Man's Search for Meaning. Well, he yep. has another book called Man's Search for Ultimate Meaning. It's not quite as good. It's essays after his death when he, it's posthumous. It's not so well written. But he says, an inadequate faith is like a little fire, and a little breeze will blow out a little fire. Mm-hmm. But real faith, he said, is like a strong blaze. And when a strong wind hits a strong blaze, it makes it even stronger as a fire. And that is real biblical faith. Wow. There's a lot of American faith which is shallow yes, sir. and untested. Sure. Yep. It lacks the realism of biblical faith. I know that my Redeemer lives, says Job when everything's against him. You know, Mother Basiliah, Father, I do not understand you, but I trust you. You know, my tutor at Oxford was a great philosopher called Basil Mitchell, one of my tutors, and he put forward a famous parable called the Parable of the Resistance Fighter. In France, in World War II, the resistance was very courageous, but it was the question, how did you know you could trust the leader? Hmm. Because if you trusted the wrong person and were betrayed, you were finished. Right. 
And he says, well, say a leader comes to you, Laurie, and I come to you one night in a bar and I say, look, I'm the local resistance leader. Trust me. Ask me any question you like tonight. But after tonight, if you join up, we'll never talk live again. It's too dangerous. You'll have to trust me in the dark. Hmm. But you'll have to know why you trust me. And if you don't, you'll doubt me. Anyway, he put it out, and even the atheists agree that his parable, which is much longer than I've said, answered that question. There are too many Americans with a faith they don't know, as Randy said, that true truth. Why, it's absolutely you know it's true. So you can trust God in the dark, under the fire. Father, I don't understand you, but I trust you. We don't know what God is doing now, but we know why we trust God who knows what he's doing now. And that's what makes a difference. So challenge your friends to make sure that they have the real thing. Mm. The virus will soon be over. The old normal's gone. Yep. We're moving into times that are very testing yes. for faith. Yes. You can see the mounting animosity of secularists. Yep. You can see the cultural Marxists, the sexual revolution and others coming down in all sorts of places. We're moving into times that are unprecedented for Americans, not for Europeans, <laughs> certainly not for Chinese Christians. But Americans better stiffen up and make sure they're believing for all the right reasons because it's going to get tough. That's a good word. Dad, you got any last question? Well, um, I think it's just it would be helpful for your audience to, to, to just underscore that, again, the world wants freedom. I mean, that's yeah. everyone's just rebelling against. Come on, let me be free. Defund the police. Freedom, freedom, freedom. But as you point out, Oz, it's not just freedom from all authority. It's freedom for uh, following the truth of God. It, you, you make an analogy to, for example, the Israelites getting free from, from Pharaoh and coming out, and they get the Ten Commandments. We need authority. We need some sense of right and wrong. And, and again, 1776, freedom from England, but then we, we put ourselves under God's authority and God's freedom and so on. And, uh, and I really, I think that that's, that's, that's so helpful. Um, just understand that it's not just total freedom. Yeah, we'll get to do anything we want to do, but it's freedom for. Maybe you want to explain that a little bit more, Haas. Well, put it this way, Randy. Randall Nebo says there are two bookends in history authoritarianism, which is order and no freedom. Mm -hmm. And the other extreme, anarchy, which is all freedom and no order. The American way, coming out of the Old Testament, because that was the deepest source, is ordered freedom. There you go. Freedom within a framework. So, you know, one of my tutor's best friends at Oxford was Sir Isaiah Berlin, very famous with his view of two freedoms. You have freedom from negative freedom, and then you have freedom for. Now, true freedom is both. If someone's under a bully or an abusive man or under colonial power or an oppressor, they're not free. You've got to have freedom from whatever oppresses you. But that's only the beginning. As the rabbis say, it took the Lord one day to get Israel out of Egypt but 40 years and counting to get Egypt out of Israel. Mm. 
They needed positive freedom. They need to know how to live. And that required a covenant, a framework of knowing how you lived well and so on. And America's thrown out the second. Mm -hmm. So American freedom is running to seed. Yeah. And what will happen? There'll be a swing from near anarchy to near authoritarianism. And that's already begun to happen. That's right. So you want to take the Black Lives Matter and all that seriously, Laurie? The end of that line is despotism. Mm -hmm. Now, the Romans saw it quite clearly. The Roman Republic didn't last very long. And as they said, when you had the war against everyone, it ended up with what they called the peace of despotism. In other words, if it's power against power, you'll never have peace until you have a power that can put down all other powers. That's right. But that's authoritarianism. Yep. And the end of the line of the radical left and a lot of the hollowed out liberalism is despotism. Yeah. We've got to get Christians to think deeply, but not just to react against dangerous things. Yeah. We should be fighting. The question is, can we still in the 21st century create societies with justice, with freedom, with peace, with human dignity, with stability? And all who are Christians who take the Bible seriously should say, yes, and this is the way. But we're not demonstrating the better way. So do you have a sense of hope or do you have a sense of despair for where we're heading as a nation? As? Well, hopelessness and despair are always pagan. <laughs> the gospel always ends in hope. Hmm. Now, we know from the Old Testament the things can get so bad that the hope has to be messianic. In other words, we're not going to be able to do it. But the Lord is sovereign and he's given us a part to play. And I love another of Reinhold Niebuhr's ideas. The end is not the end. What does he mean? There are two meanings of the word end in the Bible. End is either finis, the Latin word ending, full stop, conclusion, period, death, winter after summer. There are ends like that in life. The end of the Roman Empire, the end of the American Empire. Things will end. That's sad. But there's another sense of end in the Bible, which is end as telos, the Greek word for goal, objective, end in that sense, what God is working towards. And there's no end in the first sense that God doesn't have an end in the second sense. Mm -hmm. And so we should be people always of hope. So Americans ask me, are you optimistic? Or, and they, they usually they either mean psychological, is the glass half right. full or half yeah. empty, or sort of market circumstances, are you bullish or bearish? And I say, no, I try and be as realistic as I can. Look at reality in the white of the eye. But with the Lord and the gospel, we are always hopeful and never despairing. Can I just throw in on that? For me, as I pray and try and be observant of the times, and I, there's a glimmer of hope, not only because Christians are always hopeful, but because now it's time for the church to be the church. Like, I, politics aside, I'm like, okay, if things are going to get harder, no matter who would have been elected, how can the church actually be the church now? And I guess, like, is do you see that being a benefit too? Like, if we have to be more underground and the gritty Christians that 
dig their roots in and do what you're exhorting us to do. Um, like, is there a hope there that you see with Christians who are really resilient? Yes, of course, Laurie. I love what you're saying. Mostly I have a little quarrel with one point. Oh, yeah? yeah absolutely. After 30-odd years or more of being politicized, yeah. thank God for the new urgency of prayer for yeah. revival mm -hmm. and Christians knowing the basic challenge is to live mm -hmm. Christianly. Yeah. But I would quarrel with one thing. Please. We're not underground. This is a republic. Yeah. You know, the essence of the Jewish, what's called the Hebrew Republic, every Jew was responsible for every Jew. Mm. In other words, the mutual reciprocal responsibility of everyone for everyone. So there's no king. Yeah. There's no oligarchy, aristocracy in America. Every citizen is responsible for America. So Christians should never be underground. Mm. Now, certainly we're going to be discriminated against, we may even down the line be persecuted. But we, every single citizen who's a Christian is responsible for the whole of America. So there's no question, we stay involved politically. Mm. Not that politics is be all and end all, no, there are deeper issues. But we are responsible, we're not going underground, there's no catacombs. The early <laughs> church had no choice. I mean, that was an authoritarian regime. The Chinese Christians have no choice. Right. They're under a totalitarian regime. This is still, thank God, a free republic. Right. We've got to fight to keep it so. Well, and we are, we are shareholders in this country. Absolutely. And, and we have a stewardship response. I think we're going to answer to God for our stewardship in this country hmm. at some level. So I, no, I, had another, I, I had another question. All right, Dad, you're going to wrap if it I up? Can. Okay, well, I just love this because I'm in a ministry now uh, that's praying for, working for revival and spiritual awakening, especially in West Michigan, but we'd love to see it across our state, across our country, across our world. So we've been doing that for a number of years. Turning the clock back to the late 1700s, after the 1789 French Revolution, America, believe it or not, was very secular. Are you aware of that history? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Okay. In fact, they took a poll at Harvard University. They said, how many of you guys are Christian here? Answer, zero. There were two at Yale. <laughs> uh, immorality was climbing. Uh, drunkenness. The French Revolution, the ideas of the French Revolution were coming to America, and it, it was you know, concerning people to a great degree. But then the remnant began to pray for revival, and the Second Great Awakening hit early 1800s and had a profound influence on our country for a number of decades. Even one of the most amazing things, by 1834, the amount of money contributed to nonprofits or benevolent societies exceeded the federal budget. Missionary organizations started, and much, much happened. It began to decline then, of course, by about uh, 1830, 1840. But anyhow, do you see that that's the possibility of coming today for as we pray, as we work, as we obey God, as we lovingly share the gospel with our neighbors and live the Christian life and, and get his truth into our hearts and our lives? What, what's, do you see possibility of a, another great awakening happening in our culture? Well, I, that's in the Lord's hands, not mine. Yes. But I would love to see it. Put it this way. No, as I was speaking earlier against pietism being anti-intellectual.
Well, we've got to say that some of the reform movement, and you've got a fair amount of that in West Michigan. Yes, we do. You know, was a little unspiritual. That's mm-hmm. true. And you had reformed theology without the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And that's the other extreme. So if you take the revolution, though, you describe well the late 18th century. But remember, the build-up to the revolution was the first awakening. England in 1730 was pagan, decadent, violent, corrupt. Everything you said about France was true of England. Mm. It was saved by the first awakening. My ancestor, you know, I'm tied in with a family brewery. Mm -hmm. Arthur Guinness, my ancestor, came to faith in Christ through John Wesley in the Irish revival. That's awesome. And, of course, Wesley and Whitfield even more laid the foundations for the American Revolution. But I think it blew itself out through the revolution, and then you went to the secular age. Now, my great-grandfather, finish with this, Laurie. My great-grandfather, at the grand old age of 23 was in the Irish Revival in 1859. And we have newspaper accounts of crowds of 20, sometimes 30,000 listening to him. I don't know how they heard. No microphone, of course, and he would stand on a hay wagon and speak. (laughs) And thousands came to Christ. And in the north of Ireland, which in the 1850s, you know, was not a separate country. It was just a province. There was only literally one crime in the whole year after the revival you would have been out of business randy (laughs) in fact the the story from the welsh revival is that the police had nothing to do so they formed singing quartets that's great and they went from church to church hey we need some music call the police so that's That's how you defund the police that's it there you go (laughs) you change hearts that's what it's about that's so exciting may it happen again but thank God that the COVID has called for a new urgency of that's prayer. That's true. I think that's one of that's the right. encouraging things. I agree with you so much. That's so good, Oz. Very encouraging. So I, I, I am very hopeful, above all in the gospel. I always finish with something my dad used to say. Go for it. Have faith in God. God is greater than all. He is greater than all situations. So have faith in God. Have no fear. Amen. Amen. Oz, I like you. Thank you for being on this <laughs> Thanks podcast. for having me, Larry. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Randy. Good to Thank see you, you again. You too, Oz, after all these years. You don't, You look exactly the same, by the way. <laughs> no, no, not quite. <laughs> <laughs> Dad, that was an adventure. Yes, it was. A good one, too. We just did a thing, Dad, and we even tiptoed near tense conversations, and we did okay, and we did it on recording. It was fun. It was fun. Was that a blessing to you? It was. I loved it. Good. I I was like, by the end, I'm like, Dad's talking revival with one of his heroes? Like, this is like a moment. Amen. Did I just move up to favorite kid or no? (laughs) Well, you've always kind of been there, don't you think? (laughs) I'm Certainly, you're, you're one of my favorite 12. One that's of the 12. Sure, Steve, know. if you could just isolate that one part where you said I was the favorite, I'm yep. gonna, that's my uh-huh. new, send it to all the siblings. Uh-huh. Oh, man, guys. You guys, thanks for if you stuck through this whole episode and you rode that roller coaster ride. Thanks for being with us today. And we hope you're here with us next week where we have a question of the week, which is this. 
how are you keeping up your physical health these days? So whether you're in and out of lockdown, I, some of my neighbors built like a whole COVID home gym. It's insane. They're doing like lifting cars at this point, I think. 1990s aerobics, VHSs, Steve, is that you? You doing that? Mm. <laughs> Sometimes. I'll comment on that next week. Next week, he'll let us know. Okay, you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. I usually post it on Facebook. And again, find that Hold My Heart podcast Facebook group. Man, thanks again to Oz Guinness. Just, I don't know, pick one of his books and start reading it, this last one. Which one's your favorite, Dad? Well, I like uh, Last Call for Liberty. Last Call for Liberty. Great book. That's his recent book. Powerful. All right. Very helpful. Well, I should read that one. Dad, Randy Heckman, thanks so much for being here today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. It was a treat. It's great, Dad. And guys, for all of us here at the Whole My Heart Podcast, we will see you, Lord willing, next week. <laughs>